Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Richard Glover, who is an Australian radio personality and writer, and we had a chat about cultural cringe, teleology, loose leaf tea, uh, being in Australia, anger and epidemics. Um, it's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I'll be on uh, Richard's radio show. Thank God it's Friday, this Friday on uh, ABC Radio. Uh, last week's guest, Henry Fraser, has launched a YouTube channel now. Uh, so if you enjoy my talking to him or his part of my talking to him, you'll enjoy his podcast, which is online. Uh, if you look him up on YouTube, Henry Fraser, I think it's called the Man Mum Podcast, um, and that will be coming out in more traditional podcast formats, but he's just started by putting it up on YouTube as the kind of minimum viable product, and you should go along and give that a like and follow, um, subscribe, tell him uh, that I sent you. Uh, thank you to Ben Wren, who does a lot of the editing, the sound editing. If it sounds bad, it's probably me editing. If it sounds good, it's probably him editing. He is a great guy. Um, if you're in Sydney, I'm doing, or in Australia, I'm doing a show in uh, Canberra on the 20th of November. I'm doing a show in Port Kembla on the 16th of November. And I am doing a show in Sydney on the 23rd of November. Follow me on Twitter at Alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E for those details and ticket links and all of that stuff. Thank you for emailing me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Those of you who email me, it's such a lovely thing, and I do try to get back to all of you. If I haven't got back to you, um, do try again. Um, and Patreon subscribers, what can I say that I have not already said? Uh, people who subscribe to me on my Patreon make what I do possible. I am incredibly... Um, flattered and grateful and pleased and freed by uh, the subscriptions everyone who subscribes from a dollar all the way up to the $25 people um, you make it possible for me to do this weird niche thing of trying to talk to people about interesting things in an in, in a subtle way in a complicated way in a way that would never be able to be on television or radio doesn't sell ad space uh, it doesn't push a wagon, it doesn't, um, it's not commercial, and yet you like it enough to support it, and that means an enormous amount. I will stop being sappy and let you get on with listening to this podcast that I did with Richard Glover. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Who are you and what are you drinking? Um, my name is Richard Glover, and I am drinking, um, which may be appropriate considering my family history, I'm drinking some Yorkshire Gold, which is a real sort of north, it's a tea bag, unfortunately, but it's a really sort of northern strong tea. I feel, like, I feel like tea bags with that kind of tea are the correct way of doing it. No, no, I think I'm a big supporter of leaf tea, and I was outraged the other day because I went to the supermarket and I realised that this hardly, it took me... 10 minutes to find any leaf tea at all. The shelves are so dominated by tea bags. And the only tea was on the bottom layer, the bottom shelf. And the only people who drink leaf tea are people of my age. And this is so unfair <laughs> because even though I could get down to get the tea, I couldn't get up again. So really the tea bags, which are drunk by the younger people, should be on the bottom shelf. And the leaf tea should be at easy height. Well, apparently there's sort of a whole commercial thing when when it comes to where things are on shelves. Yes, yeah, yeah. You have to yeah. buy a particular space. Yeah, yeah. Particularly the islands, they sell at huge markups. So do you like a Yorkshire tea in a loose leaf form? I like we have We have loose leaf tea at home. I mainly, mainly have loose leaf tea. And I, I kind of don't get the, the way that there's sort of this huge um, culture around coffee in Australia now whereby... The orders are so complicated you can't, you know, you have to write them all down. Uh, and, and everyone sort of talks about their favourite barista and is willing to walk ten city blocks just so Neville can make the <laughs> because because we appreciate his tamp, you know, he's got and, and so there's all this great stuff about the coffee and then then tea, no one's interested at all. Yeah, that there is such an intense coffee culture specific oh. to coffee. As, as someone who doesn't drink coffee, mm. uh, that is weird. 
given that I feel like there are more things you can do with tea and there are more different yes. kinds of tea. And, and the, tea, the difference between a tea bag and leaf, loose leaf tea is sharper than the difference between a poorly made coffee and a well-made coffee, I think. I mean, I assume you drink both. I'm not an expert yes, on this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you think you can sort of get by on a bad coffee? Yeah, but, it, you know, tea, I'm, I'm making do, do for the sake of this podcast with Thank the you. tea I bag. appreciate that. But really, it's pretty second 11, Alice. See, I, I think of myself as, as, a, as a tea fan and not a tea snob. So I'll have a tea bag or a yeah, coffee tea bag. Yeah. But the trick, I think, with the worse the tea is, the less time you put it in the water for. Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. it doesn't have time to go yeah, yeah. all yeah, yeah. chalky and yeah. tanniny. And then if it's very bad, you start to resort to... But I, I'd also, people seem to be absolutely sort of focused on how hard leaf tea is to make. And I, I just don't understand that it's not that hard. So we went once... This well, it's certainly not as hard to make as coffee. No, that's, it's easy to make. Um, and there's something actually quite nice about the ritual of, of standing and waiting for the kettle to boil and then pouring in the thing and then waiting for it to stand. It's, you know, one of the few times in my day when I just get to stand there gormlessly, you know, staring at the half distance. It's good. <laughs> um, and, yeah, we went, to, we went to some fancy place. This five years ago um, in town, big hotel, and they had, they had um, traditional English afternoon tea so that would be lovely and so we go and, and it's fantastic and they've got the cucumber sandwiches and they've got the silver teapot and you know and they've got a, a strainer mm-hmm. in a special thing for the teapot but when you open the tea lid guess what you see bags yeah so what why have they got the strainer since they've got the bags yeah, that, that, that I think is bad. Although I was is, disgusted. There is, there is a new uh, sort of market now, a new thing, which is these sort of silk bags, sort of fa- loose leaf quality tea, but presented in these very nice, um, you know, specially triangulated yes, bags. but have you heard? I haven't pa- heard. Yeah, they're, they're made of nano part- they've got nanoparticles throughout them and they get into the tea and... You know, oh, well, I, yeah, you, I always thought of that as a sort of an ultimate laziness. If you want to put your life in danger in that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I would for tea. If I found out that tea was bad for me, I don't think I'd stop drinking it. No, no. It's, well, also, you, you know, what, what isn't tea in the end, if you think about it enough in the wrong yes, way? Yes, I guess so. Um, I, you know, I think, um, I think it's one of the few things that makes you cool when you're hot. Mm-hmm. It makes you warm when you're cold, mm-hmm. and it's a traditional thing you give to somebody who um, has, you know, has had bad news, mm-hmm. and it's the thing that you do when you have good news. Yeah, so it's suitable for everything. I think it it's is. It's the wonder beverage. It's the wonder beverage. Also, the the way that you can have tea is sort of uh, more customized to your own desire. Mm. So you can have uh, a, a cup of tea with someone that lasts fifteen minutes. Or you can have a cup of tea with someone that lasts for four hours mm, and you just mm, keep mm, refilling mm. the pot, which I think with coffee you can't do. There's sort of an ultimate limit to the amount of coffee you can drink before you start bouncing off yes, the walls. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. No, it's a, um, you're listening to Tea with Alice, uh, sponsored by the National Tea Board. <laughs> Every 1% tick up in sales, she gets the big bucks. I mean, that is the voice of a man who... As a professional radio person, knows how the brakes should fall. Yeah, that's right? it. That's this it. is the time where we reset. It's called. Is it called a reset? It's called a reset. Yeah. What have you been wrestling with then? What have I? What have I been personally wrestling with? Um, I don't know. Um, you, you're interested in things that you're ambivalent about, aren't you? That you have two. You're in two minds about. I think that's a good. Yeah, a good place to start mm. is things that you're. But you see, you, I, I think I think that about almost everything. It's a good place to be. Um, Welcome. You know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I certainly have a frustration with um, people who think that if you have one view, you must have all these other subsequent views. So if you're in favour of changing the law on abortion, for instance, which recently happened in New South Wales, you must also be a fan of euthanasia. The parliament must then do this next step. In fact, in fact, if you're if you believe the parliament should have acted on gay marriage, then you also believe all these other things. Um, without even consideration of them, because yeah. they all go together as a set. The package deal, I think, is an mm. interesting one because it implies, I think the thing that I find insulting about it um, is that it implies all everything is of, of a piece and everything yeah. is obvious and there is a natural, yeah. there's a sort of a, a natural course of progress 
which is not true. No. That is not true. There is no natural course of progress. And the progress that we have in society is so hard fought for and so hard won that to imply that it's natural is an insult mm. to the people mm. who died for various rights that we yes. now have. Well, it's teleological, really. It's, it, there's, there's some end point which, which some sort of process of evolutionary logic is dragging us towards. This is a very 19th century idea, um, which which was sort of a ban, you know, people like Comte had it in the 19th century, and it's been abandoned by anyone who has thought a minute about how progress works. And, yes, it's absolutely a sort of mix of things. My, my recent book um, is, is basically um, a cry of rage against people who talk about the good old days and how marvellous they all were and how we've now gone, you know, society's gone to the dogs. And, and I you know, I understand that people have got problems with now and want to change things now, most obviously climate change. The, the present is not at all perfect. It's full of terrible iniquities. But to then turn that around and say, and not understand the amazing progress that's been made is demeaning to all those people like, you know, Charlie Perkins, the Aboriginal activist, or the, the brave gay boys and girls of, of uh, the gay rights movement in Australia, or Ann Summers, or, you know, a million people who helped make that change happen, and all the rest of us who sort of voted and talked and wrote and th thought and added our voices to it and achieved this kind of amazing thing. Um, you know, I can't think of many places in the world that have had more change than Australia. It sort of starts off in the mid-60s as this really frightened monoculture to, with its back turned to the world, white Australia policy, trade protected. Um, the Australia that my granny came yeah, to yeah, as know, a Hungarian where you couldn't buy salami anywhere. Exactly, yeah. No, no tucker on offer um, except, you know, olive oil in, available only in little jars in the chemist's free rake, um, you know, terrible towards its Indigenous community, um, uh, uh, very hard to be different in any way, to be gay or even straight but not a particular sort of straight, very difficult to be a woman, um, uh, yeah, very difficult to be almost anything that wasn't absolutely on, on, on target. And that was the Australia really very recently, of 1965, um, or maybe even later. And there's kind of no place in the world I can easily think of that has changed so radically from that to what we have now. And I don't think that's, that view is a sort of an acceptance of, of uh, oh, let's all sit on our laurels. It's almost the opposite. It's saying that once you understand the extent of change that's been achieved in Australia, it should embolden you to understand that change, that there is human volition and there is human will and we can actually talk ourselves into a better place. I think that there is, uh, and, and this kind of taking it aside from any particular point of view, a thing that I find very frustrating is, um, and it's very appealing, and that's why I find it frustrating, the idea that, that rage and despair are good fuel mm. for progress. Mm. Mm. Um, those things are addictive, rage and despair, and uh, if you frighten people enough, you can make them change, and if you're angry enough and righteous enough, then you can make change, and that's what re is required to make yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. And I don't... I think rage is a very... Um, it's a very powerful fuel, but it's like a dirty fuel. Hmm. It clogs your hmm, pipes hmm, up hmm. and it makes you blind to the careful ways in which progress can happen and, and the way in which somebody who is opposed to you, if you set them up as an enemy, you might be able to defeat them with your hmm, rage, hmm, hmm. but there are other ways and there might be yeah. other ways and those ways should be explored, that violence is a, is a, a last resort. Well, you need hope too. I mean, it's... You know, you think about something like the gay gay rights movement um, in a, in either Australia or, or, or England. The, pe people are, people are not fighting for gay rights in the nineteen thirties because they've got no hope. They, they just know that they have to live in the shadows, and there is no possibility of them not living in the shadows. And it's really only in the middle seventies in in this country in about nineteen seventy four that people start to have sufficient hope in the society around them that they're willing to say, you know what. Let's 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 go and mark, let's go and 
March, really? Yeah, okay, let's go March. So they march in 19, I think it's 674, down Oxford, and, and 60 or 70 people get arrested by the police, and the Sydney Morning Herald publishes their names and occupations and addresses in the paper the next day, so everyone knows. Um, and that's the sort of start of the process. But um, I don't think it is, though. But, but you know, but, but they had to hope. There, 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 there had to be a combination of anger and outrage at the way they were being treated, plus an understanding that it might be possible to change that. That's, you know, why I was quite interested in what your brother was saying about Extinction Rebellion and how you do need a sort of combination of this idea that 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 the problem is so imminent and so dangerous and so devilish that we need to act and we need to blast complacency out of the water, and I absolutely understand that. But at the same time, you need to have some hope that this is within human cap- cap- capacity and if you don't, if you really believe it's hopeless, and if you believe, you know, the more extreme um, thing, oh well, all of humanity is going to die in twelve years' time, and there's virtually nothing we can do, and it's already too late, then that's as much a break on action as complacency is a break on action. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I, I found I think it's a balance that needs to go on, and I think I think my problem is with certainty about how to progress. I think these things should always be under question and that they should mm. always be... Mm. I think you should always think about did, did, what, I, did what action I did um, achieve what I wanted yes. it to achieve? Or is it, as Obama said the other week, is it just are you doing this so you feel good and you feel part of a team and you feel part of a club and we're all woke together or not woke together, we're all right-wing together, you know, whatever club you want to be part of. Are you just doing it for that great fellow feeling of... Of smug certitude, certain certitude, is that the word, or or are you actually trying to achieve change? Because if you're trying to achieve change, it is done as Obama said, not by calling out people and being really hostile and angry about them, but cajoling them and convincing them and giving them good arguments and treating them with respect. And you know, the great example here was was again, again back to gay rights was the um, Magda Zabansky's leadership of the um, the marriage equality. Bill, which ended up being hugely supported in Australia, it was something like sixty-seven percent of people voted for it across all demographics. Rural actually was almost stronger than in the cities, and it was done partly because you know she didn't make anyone feel bad. Yeah, and and that that her form of activism rode on the backs of other people who have been gay in the public eye in Australia mm. for many years. Yeah. And I've I spoken to Adam Richard about this, and his whole thing was that he did radio, even though he didn't particularly like doing it. He did it for so many years, mm-hmm. and he's just the friendly, happy voice on yeah, the yeah, radio yeah, yeah. so that if someone comes out to their parents, they can say, I'm gay, like, like Adam Richard. Like him, yeah. And they think yeah. of him as a yeah. friend already. Those but, the, but again, that's why it's important not to say, oh, the you know the past was terrific and you know um you know everything was easy in australia in the 70s because it, it demeans people like that who are the many shoulders we're all standing on are the people who actually opened this place up in a whole series of ways in the 60s 70s and really 80s and uh, you know I, I think everyone in australia's got this i well everyone in the world really in the western world has got this view that um, a lot of change happened in the late 60s and early 70s and they associate it with Woodstock and um, the beginning of feminism and the publication of, uh, of uh, Germaine Greer, Female Unique, um, uh, Whitlam government here in 1972. So they imagined this period of enormous change. And, of course, a lot of that change didn't actually percolate down very far and mm. it was very surface and it was, you know, um, uh, very urban. And, and Australia actually sailed on... Um, you know, one of the things I, I, when I talk about my book, particularly to younger women or to a younger audience, which contains women, and, um, and I, 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 I say, I explain things like until 1983, 84, actually, 1984, Australian married women couldn't leave the country without their husband's signed permission. Yeah. You couldn't get a passport without your husband's permission until 1984 when the Sex Discrimination Act comes in. Right through the 70s, in, in publications like the Australian Women's, <laughs> Women's Weekly, you would not be able to work out the first name of any married Australian woman. They're not used. So even someone quite famous like Sonia McMahon, who's the wife of the Prime Minister of the day, is always referred to as Mrs William McMahon. And she's always photographed in these group scenes with Mrs Barry Smith and Mrs Fred, <laughs> Mrs. Fred Nurk, you know. Um, and, and again, and people say... 
Uh, people of a certain age say, why have you even bothered putting in that, that in the book? Everyone knows that. And younger people say, I don't believe that. You're making that up. That surely is a lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in, in a world with a twin brother where I was never made to feel unequal with him, mm, mm. except in the ways that he is superior as a person. Of course. But not, well, that's only fair. Not gendered, not in a yeah. gendered way. Uh, but I, I also want to, like, I realised that we were talking about this kind of argument against anger, um, mm, mm. which I feel very strongly is also partly informed by my upbringing as a Buddhist, which is sort of almost unrelentingly um, non-violent. Mm, mm, mm. I, I don't want to underrate the place of disruptive activism, but I think that disruptive activism has to happen in a in a bed of of um, fertilized soil. Hmm. A- activism has to work only when the conversation is c- can work only when enough people are open to it. Hmm. When hmm. that disruption will be the thing that tips them over the edge. Hmm. Hmm. A disruption won't change someone from you know, 100 metres o- away to yep. here. They have to be right on the line thinking about this question already and then you draw attention to something mm-hmm. that they'd rather not be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's when it can really work and be really useful, but it can't exist without the the conversation around it. Mm. And it can't be host- just hostility that makes everyone feel terrible. You know? Yeah. It, yeah, uh, well, I think you, you need to have both of them together, and I prefer to be on the side of the interesting conversations because mm. that's what I'm more naturally yes. inclined to. Look, I think, I think the, this is a sort of side issue when compared to cl- climate change, of course, but I think the other problem about um, the sort of rage, the, the sort of tendency to rage at the moment is when I look at my Twitter feed, um, we, it's just there's sort of no room for not only nuance but sort of interesting stuff. So, you know, I, I, I sort of... You know, love. I really love newspapers, and I love the newspapers of, um, you know, London newspapers, and columnists like Alan Corran might be one example. So, very kind of incredibly English, witty, beautiful, um, uh, meandering pieces which start somewhere and end somewhere else, and you get this lovely laugh at the foibles of human nature, and they were always very well read, and I'd kind of almost defy anyone not to read one and enjoy it. Mm. But how does that even appear? No one's going to put it on their Twitter feed or put it on their Facebook feed because you're not saying anything about yourself. You're not supporting a cause or saying I'm very bright or aren't those left-wingers stupid or, you know, aren't I a great uh, feminist or aren't I a hostile, angry man? Or you're not saying anything about yourself. All you can possibly say is this is lovely. Mm. Now, no one's interested in saying this is lovely. So I do wonder that um, you know, as newspapers decline, and most people are getting even newspaper content through it being shared on social media, how do the fragile flowers exist? Now, the fragile flowers can be all sorts of things. They can be a beautiful, witty things like, like Alan Corrin. It can also be, I mean, there was a fantastic, um, gossipy, terrible funny, awful Kate McClymont kind of investigative piece in the Herald today about this old Beesom who was made her, made, she was at one point Australia's richest woman. She obviously made her money through running these nursing homes in which people weren't fed properly and so much so that she got lost her licence in the end. And she's now in a nursing home herself having this sort of terrible theatrical battle with all her siblings, with all her uh, you know, her daughters, her daughter and son and their and their various children, in which the whole family are at loggerheads. Now, again, it's a kind of, it's a human, I'm not saying it's an important thing for people to read. It's just a piece of sort of human nature. Mm. Um, but how does that even exist in the sort of um, uh, uh, biosphere of the ecology, is probably the word, of, of media these days? I feel like this is kind of... A thing that happened with postmodernism, which was an important thing. Postmodernism was a really important thing for breaking down these really impermeable barriers between high culture and low culture. Mm-hmm. It was an aristocratic idea of, of of culture that underrated what people enjoyed and overrated what you know intellectuals entertained. But in breaking down that barrier um, or those barriers, what you end up with is. Uh, a, d- a democracy of art mm. 
And I don't think that's good for art. Mm. <laughs> I think democracy is good for government, but I don't think it's necessary. Well, it's questionable nowadays, but uh, if you don't have a free media, you don't have a democracy, I think. No. Free me media is increasingly algorithmically controlled. That's a sideline. No, My no, but that's is- central to this, that we're all in these sort of silos where you can't get even a human interest story like Kate's story is only really available via something called a newspaper where you agree to flip over pages and allow your eyes to be caught by something. And the thing that your eye gets caught by might be an argument um, about, uh, I mean, I read Amanda Vanstone's column today, mm. which is a sort of a, a column about how, in support of the way we treat asylum seekers. I read that in the high court. Okay, it's not my view, but re- I actually read it. Mm. I don't know if I, you know, but... And, it, and, and then I read Kate's story and then, you know, and I might even see the headline of the sport page, even though I'm not interested. I might at least vaguely gather that we're playing cricket, which might be kind of good for my role as a citizen. Too. Yeah. So I'm forced to actually, not forced to, but I mean, the, the format encourages me to do lots of different things, whilst the format of the silo age doesn't encourage me to do anything except the things I'm signed up for. Yeah, and I think the problem is, and the analogy I use is um, peacocks. It's not Mm -hmm. the most artistic peacocks that survive in the state of nature. Mm. It's the flashiest ones. Mm. It's it's the Mm. Kardashian peacocks that survive. You know, I'm sure there was some beautiful at some point in the evolutionary process, some beautiful, subtle, pastel peacocks with asymmetrical Mm. Mm. tail feathers. Mm. It's the loud ones. I think the idea of sort of evolution or the the will of the masses or all of these things, this idea that 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 it's just it's just another form of might is right. It's but mm, but mm, with responsibility mm. dispersed among people, so everyone can feel like their hands are clean mm. and no one gets burned in the town square. Mm. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. No, I mean there's a great the version of your peacock thing. It's Stephen Leacock, who was a Canadian humorist in like the 1920s, um, he said. Uh, Half an argument, like half a brick, goes further, <laughs> and it's good, isn't it? And it's 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 it's, it's it, you know it's equipped from well before the internet age, but it suits it suits it um, it suits it completely. Well, I mean, you see that very much with people like uh, politicians now are not finishing sentences, and I think that's tactical. I don't think it's because they're all idiots. Mm, mm, mm. I think it's because a half finished sentence lets you fill the end of the sentence as you wish. So if you if you leave a sort of an elliptical trailing sentence, mm. then everyone can mm. Mm. assume you're right. It's the happily ever after. You don't have to describe what that actually looks like. Yes, that's right. And and you know the point of a good political interview is they is you actually force people to say, you know, what does this mean? Because politicians love saying things that are vague and actually that everyone agrees with. And but okay. Um, we're going to give more funding to help drought-stricken farmers. In what way? How does Where? that work? How does that work? How much money? Is that money? Is the amount of money you're talking about more than it was last year? Or and and they they love not answering these questions and just giving this sort of general feeling of well, and it becomes more and more and more acceptable as as the format in which you present that argument is shortened. Things like Twitter, yeah, yeah, lend themselves to a, a bias in human thinking, which is that you. You're, you're much more convinced of something if you don't have to explain how it will work. Mm-hmm. If you ask anyone to explain why they believe something and how it would be practically applied, mm. whether it's the refugee policy that mm-hmm. we have now or the refugee policy that you would like to have or climate change yes, stuff, yeah. what, what is the actual step-by-step yeah. process? And I think even people, people who don't believe in climate change have no idea what climate change is. People who do believe in climate change have no idea what climate change is. Mm-hmm. Just sitting down and going, how, why do I think this? How does it work? How do I think it works? Yes. People haven't asked themselves oh, I that think that's question. Right. I think that's right. I mean, we talk endlessly about you know, the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates. What does that mean? No one knows, actually. Well, yeah, what, what's no an interest knows. rate? What's no a Reserve knows. Bank? Well, yes. What's money? Is, what, is, do, what is money? Is, 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 that the, is that the amount of money that the Reserve Bank charges the big banks to borrow money from them? No, not really. It's more complicated than that. But no one really kind of understands it. Yet we talk about... Yeah, so... And I think, that, I mean, I was interested, a minute ago, you were sort of talking about, um, you know, the crowd. And I think that's the other... You know, one of the things about democracy is that you you have, and it's a great advantage of representative democracy rather than direct democracy, is that you do have to kind of ameliorate 
the crowd, the crowd just doesn't, everyone doesn't just get what they want. And, you know, there is a sense, if you just listen to talkback radio, even ABC talkback radio, we're quite hostile towards minorities. And the minority might be smokers at the moment, for instance, are a minority group who I think need to be protected somewhat, slightly, you know. And yet there's no, there's no, um, passion for that at all they should just you know because they're they're, they're now down to 12 percent you know so you're trying yeah just let, let's make life as hard as possible charge them as much not allow them to do it anywhere even outside they're not allowed to do it yeah. um so uh, you know i think one of the funny things about australia is we think of ourselves as so sort of marvelous and larrikin and and we we're actually quite an authoritarian we've got a real authoritarian streak in australia so you know, we are, we love rules, and our answer to any problem is to is uh, again. This is a talkback radio thing and a parliamentary thing. As soon as something terrible happens, you know, bring in a law to stop that. You know, let's 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 legislate. So we're one of the I think two or three countries in the world which where you have to have um, helmets when you ride a bike by law. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but every other country in the world, virtually other than us in New Zealand and maybe it's Sweden has decided that the negatives of that are so strong in terms of discouraging riding and thus making bikes less ubiquitous on the roads, thus not changing the driving culture of cars. All of those problems are so intense that actually you're safer, paradoxically, to allow people to cycle however they want. Yeah. That's what they decide. We've decided something different, which may be fair enough, um, but... It's just a measure of how we love rules. We're the only country in the world where, well, we're one of the very few countries in the world where you can get fined for parking the wrong way round on a suburban street. <laughs> and again, if you try to say, if you, I've said this on radio, isn't that ridiculous? And everyone rings up because I get fined all the time outside my boring suburban <laughs> street. It's totally undangerous, totally non-dangerous, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you say that on radio, everyone says, oh, I'm glad they find you, Richard. Yeah. It's, that's, that's dangerous driving. Well, okay, I get that, but most countries don't do it. Why do we do it? Because we like rules. And, that, I mean, the reason we like rules is super interesting and complicated uh, and is going to get me into talking about my master's thesis and everything. But one of the reasons that we like rules is because we were under military law, mm, under mm. British rule at the beginning, and then we started to write our own laws and we elected a police force from among our own population back when that population was very small and everyone knew mm, each other mm, from mm, being mm, on a boat mm, together mm, for three months. And so we have this beautiful egalitarianism and you combine that with the kind of the frontier culture where everyone has to mm, have each mm, other's back mm, mm, and then all of a sudden stepping out of, a, out of line is a threat not just to you uh, in every culture, you know, being an outsider or a nonconformist is mm. a threat to the person individually, but it becomes a threat to the whole community. And so yeah, we come yeah. down on it like a ton of bricks. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think we've got, a, especially compared to America, we've got a collectivist urge rather than an individualistic urge. And that's obviously got a whole bundle of really good things about it. Mm. So, you know, I think really good things grow out of that collectivist urge like compulsory voting, which, again, Americans don't understand. They think that's outrageous, yeah. forcing someone to vote. But most Australians, including myself, think that's a great idea and it's because we all want to take responsibility together. It's a collectivist urge. Um, so, you know, it's, it's why we... we um, and we... we, we we introduce elections really early, and we the way we pref we have preference voting rather than rather than um, first past the post. And again, that's a way of saying, Alice, you've got to participate in this decision. I know you wanted, you know, the the uh, tea party, uh, the the hot tea party um, <laughs> in number one, but you've but they're not going to win. So you've really got to come down and choose between Labor and Liberal. In the end, you've got to tell us which one you prefer. Yeah, the if, major you, if, you, if you can't have your top preference, which yeah. one would you take? Yeah. So it forces you to be a participant. Well, and it also forces you just by implication to accept that yeah. things are not perfect or not as you would like them to be. Well, but is there still? There's still. If if the, if you can't get what you want, what's the next best? Yes, thing? that's and What's right. the best yeah. thing after that? And what's the best thing after that? And what the pl very pleasing outcome of that is that Australian politics is incredibly boring. Yeah, and it's often a fight for the middle um, because of the way that, that all works together. And again, this is not saying Australian politics is, is perfect. And in fact, it's you know we've, we've been through an incredibly difficult period for the last ten years, ten, ten years or something. <laughs> um, so it's not at all perfect. But it, 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 the natural tendency of Australian politics, and this has worked over time, is to push people into the middle ground so that you're fighting over um, pretty 
shared policies that are going to most people are going to think are okay. So we we haven't tended to have that South American thing where you have a right wing government, extreme right wing government, and extreme left wing government swapping over. And you also don't need to frighten people into voting. You don't need to work them no, up into right. a frenzy to have them vote because voting is compulsory. Yeah, so you don't need to spend a lot of time appealing to um, your own constituency. You've got to spend time appealing to the middle somehow. Yeah. Um, that's and that has its upsides and its downsides. Yeah, sure. That's right. That's right. But it is interesting the way we are, the, the, the way um, the, the way these things that are kind of deep in our history, I think, uh, uh, produce these quite unusual outcomes in Australia. I, mean, I wrote a column on the weekend about about putting putting forward the view that there is no country that finds Donald Trump more ludicrous than Australia. Mm. And the reason is because we have a particular um, hatred of, of bragging and big noting. I mean, I argued in the piece, in fact, we've got a We've got too much of an attitude about big noting and bragging. I talked about... There's a reason I'm working in the UK these yeah, days. Yeah, you know, and there, there is this sort of terror. Most people in my generation were, 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 you know, I say, how Trump would be different if he had a mother? Doesn't he have a mother, we wonder? Certainly, if he had an Australian mother, she would have said, <laughs> when he says, oh, you know, I'm the one who got Baghdadi, you know, I'm the one who's cleaned up by... It's like, don't be a big noter, Donald. You know, yeah. don't get... Pull your head get, in, mate. Yeah, you're up yourself, mate. Don't get tickets on yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and I wrote about how, um, you know, I've got friends who've been to LA to audition and how actors and, and writers and how they have to really consciously, consciously force themselves to, to big note themselves because it really doesn't come naturally. And, and if, if they have won, you know, a, a prize for writing, they've got to say that in the first five seconds of the meeting or other people think they're weird. Yeah, I um, had a I, when I was living in New York and starting out as a as a young comedian, a friend of mine came to visit me in New York, and I was I bumped into a man on the street, and uh, we'd sort of met once before, and I said, "Oh, I've got this gig. You should come along. It'll be great yeah, to yeah. see you." And I'm getting better at comedy, and I, and she we had a fight over it. She was like, "I really didn't like to see you behave like that," and I was like. That's the way things are. She thought you had tickets on yourself. Yeah, that I was boasting or that I was trying to trick him into coming or that because I needed to get a certain number of people to the show or trying to get his money or whatever Alice, no one likes a big noter. No one likes a big noter in Australia. No. I also say, in the piece I said, uh, sometimes I have a real urge when I'm on radio and I've got an American guest and they might be fabulous and I really want the audience to love them Mm. and there'll be a point in the interview where they'll start listing their own achievements (laughs) and I feel like like turning the microphone off and saying, mate, don't do that. I'll tell you what, I'll mention that you got the Nobel Prize for biology. I'll, I'll do it soon. But don't you say it. If you say it, they'll all turn off. And as they turn off, they'll be saying, oh, mate, he was up himself. Well, this is the thing. You, as an MC for a comedy night, you will say uh, to someone backstage, yeah. what do you want me to say about yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, How yeah. do you want me to introduce you? In America, they introduce you with a list of your credits, yeah. what shows you've been on, what yeah, television, yeah, yeah, what your yeah, achievements yeah, yeah, yeah. are. Yeah. In England or Australia, they'll introduce you by saying, oh, this is a great friend of mine. Yes, yes. And if somebody introduces you to stage by saying, welcome to the stage, Alice Fraser, she's very funny, you walk in and onto the stage and you go, thanks, mate, like you've screwed me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because then... Expectation, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can only disappoint. Yeah, and... and of course. The, with an Australian audience, if someone says, oh, this person's very funny, the Australian reaction is, oh, yeah. Yeah, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Yes, that's right. So you know, the classic is uh, the classic Australian childhood is mum, mum. Good news, I got ninety nine out of a hundred in the maths exam. So where did you lose that extra mark? <laughs> My mum used to say that to me. What went wrong? <laughs> yeah, what, what what went wrong? Yeah, exactly that's that. It's a shame. <laughs> My dad would sit me down with my report card, which always took me a week between getting it at school and giving it to him. Yeah. A week of just percolating and trying to work up the courage. And my dad's a very reasonable man, but he would sit down and he'd say, so you've got good marks in English and history. I expect that. Let's talk about <laughs> the ones you the haven't, ones you that's haven't right. done because, well yeah. on. What, what, what went wrong? Well, they don't, want you, don't get, yeah, they don't want you to get too big for your boots, you see. That's the thing. And obviously that was a very constraining thing and ridiculous. You know, you know, my, my point about all this is actually we take it too far and it can be a real break on ambition and, um, and a bit more sort of national self-confidence and individual self-confidence would, you know, be actually quite... A useful thing, um, but some parts of it I do like. I mean, I like the fact that um, 
you know, maybe people maybe people think this is false modesty, but you know, our cricketer, if if the cricketer scores brilliantly against the Poms and you know uh, makes the world record, you're you're you and you you praise him on his return. He's supposed to say, oh yeah, well, I, yeah, I suppose I wasn't too bad on the day. Yeah. And the you know the firefighter who risks his life in terrible conditions, you're a hero. I might say on the radio, and the absolute required response, as if by law, is for him to say, mate, it was nothing, anyone would do the same. Yeah. That's the required response. If he says anything other than that, people would be shocked. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, I, I love the fact that Australia is, I think Australia is the only language in the world where your best friend is a total bastard, yeah. but someone who's really evil is a bit of a bastard. Yeah. Now explain that. Yes, yeah. and... Uh, yeah, you'll say, uh, how are you, cunt, to your best friend? Yes, yeah. And uh, how are you, mate, to the man you're about to punch? Yeah, 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 yeah mate. With the various the variations of mate. A subtle, how it's ma- a subtle how many, and How many A's has it got in it? Mate. <laughs> I mean, South Africans do that as well with my friend. All ah, right. If they call you uh, my friend, you are not their friend. You're, you're not their friend. Things are about to kick off. Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of do, I do think that's kind of good. Well, like as a with bit most of self-deprecation. Things, I have an but ongoing theory that every, almost every bad quality in a person or a system hmm. is the flip side, inextricable yes. face of the coin, which has something that you really like. Absolutely. I know. Some that's a very Buddhist idea, isn't it? A very. It's in the Tao, isn't it? Uh, stuff like that, I think. Yes, that's not a school of Buddhism that I was uh, mm. open to. But, yeah, I think it's, you know, you meet someone and they have this incredibly frustrating quality about them. Mm. It's usually, if they're at all self-aware, if they're not, you know, a, a waste of space, it's usually something else about that quality that means mm. they can't get rid of it. Mm. Mm. Somebody right. who is extremely rigid that might mean that they're incredibly honest. Mm, mm, Whereas somebody mm, who mm, is mm, a little mm. bit sneaky, it's because they're very careful of the feelings of people around them. Yes, they have yes. this, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think just being, again, thinking how you work and having a minute to think about how you think mm. helps you to figure out where those things are in yourself. Yes, and that same quality can be expressed good ways or bad ways. So the, the aim is maybe not to change your nature but to change the expressions of your nature so that you choose the better expressions. Yeah, and for that you need to have some self-consciousness Yes, I without so. being um, self-absorbed. Hmm. It's very hard. I think I have very little self-analysis <laughs> <laughs> or anything really. Well, there's a problem in, in the industry that you're in and the industry that I am in, in various different branches of the same industry. It's very hard to be a workaholic without being a narcissist because the product is yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have to be, you have to have some sort of understanding of where your work and yourself are separate. Yes, although I think I think anyone who's good at it actually, I think I think if you're an egomaniac in writing, it's really terrible. Um, so I think almost all writing is, and and probably radio too, is this dance between self doubt. Um, and self-confidence. So you've got to be confident enough to sit down at the keyboard to begin with to believe that um, there's possibly anything worth reading there. At the same time, uh, you have to have enough self-doubt to constantly want to achieve more with it and be better at it and make it good. Yeah. So it's a constant dance between those two things. And I think the simple narcissist isn't um, isn't, isn't going to be very successful. No. No, but a, a clever narcissist will be successful. Hmm. <laughs> I know plenty Maybe. of them. <laughs> is that right? I think the handy thing for me is because <clears throat> I have a, a twin brother, I get to see a lot, that we share a lot of qualities mm-hmm. and they are expressed incredibly differently. And there are things that he does much better than I do and things that I do better than he does. He's much more self-critical than I am to the point where it's almost... Uh, freezes him in place mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's very hard on himself. But uh, he's just launched a YouTube uh, series of YouTube videos mm-hmm. um, where he's just talking into a camera and he's not editing or doing anything like that. And it only took a whole year without sleeping at all, uh, bringing up his daughter for him to get to that point where he can just put something out there yes. and iterate on the fly. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that I could hear that self-doubt. It was a very appealing quality in the yeah. podcast I heard, actually. Um, yes, I think it's hard in Australia to have tickets on yourself, actually. I, I don't I don't think, and that's not particularly because of the tall poppy syndrome and the, that, that, that fact that people 
give you crap all the time. It's just that it's a very small market. So it's a very sort of small business. So um, if, if, you're, if you've got a, a really best-selling book, you're selling 50,000 copies of it or something. That's an enormous bestseller. Mm. You know, most books might sell five or 8,000 copies if you're lucky. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to, in your head, be driving around in a Rolls Royce thinking you, you, you're some sort of hero to humanity if you work in Australia. Most people have to have sort of 15 different jobs, so they're writing a column and also doing a radio show and also do, you know, the, there are very few people who can be writers here. It's the, it's the sort of truth of the matter. I think it's, yeah, I, I read a, an article and I can't remember whether it was a universal or Australia-specific, but about 96% of artists mm. have a, a day job. Yeah. So I think one of the, thing, one of the things um, that I think is weird from my generation's point of view is, is that um, so I, I sort of, you know, end up coming, going to university and that sort of stuff probably late 70s. And it really does seem as if Australia suddenly opened up in the 70s. So um, all these things that really didn't exist have started to exist, but only quite briefly before. So theatre really starts in 1971, 72, by and large. You know, there's a few things beforehand, but that's when you get Pram Factory in Melbourne and Nimrod in Sydney and the film industry suddenly goes bang and there's Picnic at Hanging Rock and all this and there's the Whitlam government and there's free university education and there's lots of activity around publishing. And um, I remember... Uh, there was this sort of moment when I was at university when Clive, I was, I was um, sort of writing pieces in Onisoir, which was the Sydney University newspaper, and Clive James swept into town. He was making a TV documentary about himself as a young Australian who went over to England, of course. And he sort of, and I'd asked for an interview for Onisoir, and he formed the view that I must be the editor of Onisoir which I wasn't, but I didn't correct him. Um, and so he ended up interviewing me for the, for the documentary and to say, well, when I was your age, son, you know, I, I left Australia because it was a cultural desert. You know, what about you? And, oh, no, you know, Clive, of course, you know, never think of leaving here. It's, everything's happening here. This is, the, this is a cultural, you know, mecca. Where's the effect? And when I look back at that, I sort of, there's part of me that wishes I were gone. Yeah. Um, that it is quite, it is quite difficult to... Um, it's quite difficult to have a creative life here, and I think I, and you know, and, and um, you know, my wife's a writer as well, and you know, I'm not whinging about this at all. And the, you know, we both love Australia, and there's great things about Australia, and you know, and there's it's it, I, it's also kind of important. I think it's great to be a citizen and feel responsible for a place, you know, some tiny. Mm. So there are all those good things about it, but in terms of the work, it is very hard here. Yeah. It's just very hard to sell enough books or, um, uh, you know, there's, if, you get, if you get a book out, it's reviewed once or maybe three times. You know, there's, you actually don't, you, you can't get reviewed because there are no outlets to review you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, an, it's a... So go, fly, Alice, fly, fly, fly away. Well, there's a flip as side. You already have, as you already have as done. As I already have done. There's a flip side to every coin. You know, the moment <clears throat> I left, the moment I left uh, to go to university in the UK, I made it so that I will never be in the same place as all my friends mm. again mm. for the rest of my life. My friendship yep. group, which is a very creative, artistic group who've mm. now gone on mm. to great things in the Australian media and are all representing themselves very well in their various fields, mm. Mm. That closed after me. The whole I left <clears throat> was closed by other people and my friends in the UK and in America mm. and yes. all of that. Um, so I never will feel, I think, that I have a place again in mm. the way that you've mm. described mm. in this feeling like a, a citizen who is responsible mm. and embedded mm. in. And, mm. you know, you are a, a figure in the Australian media. You're part of the cultural landscape. Well, yes, you know. But it's a small land. Yeah, yeah a small <laughs> yeah, landscape. Yeah. But you know, as such, you're a you know a big fish in a medium-sized pond. Yes, I think that's right. And I have a a job that I'm very happy with, and and I get to follow my desires in this sort of worldwide way. And the media the, the media landscape now is international. I can have fans all over the world. Mm-hmm. I can build my community uh, in a way now uh, that I couldn't have done. When I started out, mm, mm. and and yeah, there, there are these upsides and these downsides. I think. Yeah, and I think look, this is not to be too critical of Australia because I think the other problem is their problem. So that when you try to sell things from Australia to to England, 
um, there's very there's just very little appetite for it, and you know some things do. The the dry you know, is, is, a, is an Australian novel, which is well bestseller list. You know, so so there's some fantastic things that do survive. That's, that's an Australian novel about Australia. I and think this is the Star Trek problem. No, that that did well. Uh, yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. But it's it, this is this is a, it's not a Star Trek problem, a Star Wars problem, uh, where you have a, a planet and everyone on the, that planet does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Lord of the Rings, the dwarves are all miners. Yes, yes. The elves are all archers. Oh, that's funny. I've never so, thought of that. So, as an Australian going into that market, yeah. they want you to be an Australian. <clears throat> they don't want you to be you. No. Or have, uh, have it's not about what you have to say. It's yes. about your representation mm-hmm. of your own mm. culture because it's such a, a small and dense. Mm. And but we're not like that the other way around. So Australians spend half their life watching Danish television and American television and English television. We spend half our life reading books from these. We're very amenable to. It. I mean, it's the great success of the culture. Actually, it's it's a very um, seriously open culture now. And again, in a way, remarkable when you consider where we've come from. Incredibly open to to influence and um, from 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 everywhere. And yet, no one returns the favour. So the only way an Australian television show. So my wife wrote Offspring. You know, she's a creator of offspring the only way um and that has now through streaming services gone elsewhere but 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 really something like that which was really great Mm. should have been on the bbc straight away um uh, as we as would have been a bbc show of that quality being you know on our main broadcasters here most australian tv shows they only get shown at all if they're remade yes with American accent. Trying to sell my show, The Resistance, a yeah. sitcom based on The Resistance, yeah. to the UK market. And they said, well, can we set it in London? Yes, yeah. I said, well, you sort of can set it yes. in London. And they said, can we set it now? And I said, absolutely not. These are waves of immigrants that are specific yeah, yeah, to that yeah, yeah, time yeah, yeah, period. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not, well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this in book because I don't want to be. Um, Sort of cultural cringy and cultural desert and say, oh, Australia is terrible. It's 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 more the problem of the rest of the world that they aren't as I mean they aren't open they aren't as global as we are. And there's a little loop in that, in that as Australians we absorb a lot of things from outside outside mm. influences. We're an outward looking yeah. nation, but part of what we absorb, and as you said, cultural cringy. Part of what we absorb is other people's disdain for our culture. <laughs> yeah. And that f- forms a feedback loop where we don't have an, as much of an appetite for our own cultural products uh, because we've absorbed yeah. this kind of scorn from other... Mm. And so we... People do love criticising um, Australia. They do, actually. They really could. It was funny. I, I put a little tweet out. I went to Adelaide on the weekend. There was this nice little moment on the Qantas plane where the pilot said, Oh, look, Steve, uh, Steve here, the... Um, second officer or something, he's just completed his six months training. It's quite a hard, onerous thing. And he's, today he's completed it and actually he's from Adelaide and he'll be going home to his wife tonight having completed it. And the whole whole plane, every single person on that plane applauded. Yeah. <laughs> and, I thought it was like, and so I did a little tweet um, saying, and, and, I, and I'm, because I'm Australian and I understand, yeah. I made sure I said, Australia, not perfect, but there yeah. are odd moments that make my heart sing, this is what happened. And, of course, the reaction was, you pillock, yeah. You know, anyone in the world would do that. It's not true. It's not true. A, it's probably not true. And B, even if it was true, it's okay to say, it's okay to occasionally say your culture is okay. And again, which again we go goes back to what you were saying right at the beginning about how to achieve change. Do you achieve change by by being entirely critical all the time or by actually enjoying some of the things that make this place worth saving. Uh, you know, with climate change, to say that the volunteer firefighters are a bit special, um, when you say that out loud, again, people say, oh, they're not that special. Hey, people around the world would, oh, what? Other people don't put out fires? Of course they do, mate. Um, well, yeah, okay, they do. Um, I don't think there's any organisation actually as large in terms of the number of volunteers per head of population as the RFS and... Um, uh, Etc. There's a great volunteering culture here. You know, it's. I think it's okay to say that. Well, also, you know, for example, things like feminism. Talking about how bad things were in mm. the past is incredibly easy to do. Yeah. Because they were. They were. But if you don't celebrate how far we've come, how yeah, much yeah. progress was being yeah, made, yeah. even in those bad times, even in 1984 yes, yeah. when yes, women yes. had to get their yeah. things signed by their husband, you know, there would have been husbands who thought that was ridiculous and wives who thought that was ridiculous. And you look back at the, at the suffrage, the women in the suffrage mm-hmm. who fought, 
the the focus on the negative now you hear people talk about how oppressed we are still as women mm. and maybe that is true but it doesn't take into account how far we've come yeah and, and not as i say under, understand understand that should embolden you yeah. to understand that I mean, a bit like, you know, they're, they're one of the great books about this is E.P. Thompson's Making the English Working Class, which is just, it's a real book about, and then he wrote a sort of more philosophical book called The called the um, the, po- the Politics of Theory, I think it's called, which is really sort of a, 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 a book against Althusserian uh, ideas that, you know, we're all puppets of the social and economic forces that are dominating society at the time. And E.P. Thompson's point in both the philosophy book and, and the practical history book is human volition. Human volition is this an amazing thing and human beings change the world and they change the world through agitating and talking and debating and, um, you know, the making of the English working class is full of, of, you know, and some people deride this as the great man in history theory or something like that and say, oh, no, we're all... If, if, if this guy hadn't um, protested against the corn laws, someone else would have filled you know, his or her role. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's actually important to celebrate these people who, who, who did make the change and did fight for these things and did kind of steer the course of human history. Well, I also, and this is sort of bringing it to a close, my dad did a really fun uh, thing at the stand-up philosophy night that we did together in Melbourne. I did the stand-up, he did the philosophy. All right. But he did sort of stand-up. He, I gave him a taste uh, for stand-up by taking him to Edinburgh with me. He came for the yeah. last week of well, Edinburgh fun. and I took yeah. him to all the weird stuff and he went up, got up on stage and made a joke and like a proper joke uh-huh. and the audience laughed properly, not like polite conference yes, yes, laughter, yeah, yeah. which he's had for many years, but like an actual laugh and he came off stage and he said, Ali, it just <sighs> hits you. Like it hits you in the chest when they laugh like that. Yeah. Uh, but he, he got up and he said, um, he started bagging out the government and, you know, these terrible corrupt government and then private business, the, these terrible mm. factories mm. where they just mm. suck the life out of people and they don't give back to the community and then the schools with these teachers who are just working out these stupid programs they're not interested in and engaged in the project of education and the children are spoiled and just went down like that. The unions are just knee-breaking, losing their power, you know, just going through it piece mm-hmm. by piece. And in front of this very Melbourne yes, arty yeah. philosophy yeah. audience and watching them all nodding along yeah, to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he got to the end of the list and then ran through the list in summary. The public sector, the private sector, the unions, the schools, the universities, the... Mm. Oh, no, that's us. Yeah. That's us. And, yeah. and I think particularly for my generation, we're in our 30s now. Mm. We have power. Mm. We can't just complain about things and rail against things and... And, and it's not enough to just march in the streets. We do have power in society and, it, and we can uh, yeah, get it. And I, think, I think that's right. But I also think it's really important to um, try to separate the things that really do need changing with this sort of media created and Facebook created kind of false sense of panic about everything. So, mm. um, you know, the, almost any time the word epidemic is used, mm. almost any time it'll be a lie. Yeah, I guarantee that. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I, I did a, a piece the other day for the Herald where where I just went through every use I could find of the word epidemic for the last three weeks, and one of them there was an epidemic of um, of, of apartment fires in Sydney. <laughs> so, so I rang up the fire brigade and said, "Is this true? Are there is there are there more? Because I, you know, how can there? We've got more um, more uh, you know water." retaining things and the uh, the uh, I just found that very unlikely and they said oh okay it is tr- it is true that there has been a slight increase in apartment fires but then again there are many more apartments in Sydney yeah. than there used to be yep. and actually per 100,000 it's actually down and the whole fire rate is down 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 then there was an article in the times good paper the times should be credible um, about the epidemic of crime across the britain again i, I this crime is for, has fallen sharply in every western country since 1990 how could this be true well when you read the article in the times it turns out this is an article in which chief police officers in various districts have been asked to predict the amount of crime in 10 years time in their districts in order to secure extra funding. <laughs> and the police officers <laughs> had decided that the level of housebreaking in Norwich was about to go up. Yeah. It's actually going down. 
Um, but you know, you can and you can do that with almost everything. You know, mostly the number of car we've got terrible car accidents in Australia. But if the rate was the rate it was in 1975, we'd lose six thousand more people a year. The murder rate in New South Wales is now 0.8. That is half what it was in 1990. Half. Yeah. If the number of people per hundred thousand were being killed in New South Wales as were being killed then, we'd be losing 335 more people a year. Child drownings, um, child poisonings before um, child safe lids. Um, you know, the, uh, you can almost, suicide is, and of course it's an epidemic. I'm not here to say we, that we shouldn't worry about suicide. We should do everything. But let's not say it's worse than it used to be because actually it peaks in 1965. Yeah. Yeah, and then if you if you worry, I mean, I think epidemic is one to watch out for. Outrage, people, yes, people, and particularly the idea that people have changed something in response to outrage. Very yes, rarely yes. the case. Um, outrage is very rarely as much as you think it is. It's usually about eight letters. Mm. Um, uh, what else? Epidemics, outrage, um, crisis, crisis. Yep. Uh, and, and it's important to say that this is this is so that we can clear our vision to understand the things that really need to be changed because they're obvious. I think the bad things about the current world are really obvious: climate change, rising inequality, uh, um, and, and maybe anxiety levels created by social media. Yeah, they're probably you know three of the more significant ones, but um, and they need all our attention and effort rather than being distracted by an epidemic of house fires in Sydney, yeah. of apartment fires. Yeah, well, uh, clarity of vision and, like, mm. realism, I think, is is yeah. so much more useful in a conversation. It's very tempting to think if you work people up into enough of a frenzy, things mm -hmm. will change. But I think that nature of the frenzy, particularly if it's expressed online, is like a valve mm. uh, for for passion. You feel this need to change something, and if you can express that need mm. very easily with very with no friction, then it goes away, mm. and you can address mm. that that desire in mm. yourself through a tweet. Any politics is about taking other people with you. Yeah. Whereas if you sit down with people, mm. then you can push that pressure valve into a more mm. relevant place. And trying to and and trying to see where they're starting from. I think that's that, that was the brilliance of someone like Magda Zabansky and the you know, you, you start off, okay, what what is the other side what what's the other side feeling? What do they think why why are why are people so much on the government government side when it comes to um, asylum seekers? Why why are Australians so worried about the boats? Well he's you know like understand that. Understand where the other side is coming from and then try to answer those questions questions yeah because otherwise you end up with what we see which is straw man versus straw man yeah, yeah. and nothing two no people ground two, yeah. gained two people given. standing in silos shouting at each other so where can people find you online or in the world uh, uh, uh richard richardglover.com.au richardglover.com and i write a piece in the herald every week and i write a piece in the washington post every you know every now and then every month or something oh. and um and the book i talked about is called the book about the 60s and 70s is called The Land Before Avocado. Oh, The Land Before Avocado. Land that is a great, avocado. a great title. Um, thank you so much for having oh, tea with me. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. Excellent. I'll have you back next time I'm home.
do you know, or do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doffers, cry up your ends. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.